The Bob Murphy Show, episode 267. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. I am going to be on this one continuing the Christian theme. The last episode was a rebroadcast of an interview I did with Luke Avery. This one is not a rebroadcast. This is brand spanking new. And I'm recording this going into Holy Week. So there's that element. But what's sparking this is I just recently had a conversation with someone. I won't give more details about who the person is because I don't know if he wants me to share such things. But he was asking me some interesting questions get into some deep issues about the Bible. And I think, by the way, e- even if you're not religious, I think this will be interesting to you. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Well, let me just mention this sort of housekeeping. You may have noticed I'm not doing as many interviews lately. It's not that the show is forever now just going to be me pontificating. It's rather that stuff is kind of crazy on my end. And so since I also do some other podcasts where like the format of those, there has to be a guest then for me to be able to like book people. It's hard for me to have like a bunch of things all booked the same week. And so since the other ones require it, whereas this one, I can just do solo topics for a bit. That's why it's turning out this way. But once things settle down, the Bob Murphy show will also start having guests as well. So back to the topic at hand, the person I was talking to was saying that, yeah, I'm reading the gospels and a lot of what Jesus is saying, like, I like the way he handles himself in certain situations, but then geez, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, he's getting up there and if somebody slaps you or strikes you on one cheek, you should turn off of the other. If he takes your cloak, you should offer him your shirt or whatever the exact phrasing is. They just, boy, I... I don't know if I can go along with that. So we were talking about that. So I thought it'd be good to just dwell on this a bit. As I'm sure many of you know, I consider myself a pacifist. And so this will overlap a lot with those views. So on the narrow element, I think most people, when they hear that, the famous turn the other cheek instruction, they generalize it and assume that Jesus is speaking more broadly about here's how you handle it when people do something bad to you. And if you take it really far, then it seems like, well, gee, you're just going to be a doormat and everyone's just going to walk all over you and you're going to end up dead. Now, that actually might be correct, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But I have also seen some people make the point that, well, no, hang on. Like, why can't we just listen to what he's actually saying? Right? So when you say, if someone strikes you on your cheek, turn and offer him the other cheek, and people say, oh, well, you're dead. Well, well, no you would have had either one or two cheeks slapped if you literally followed that particular command, right? You don't die from that. And so unless the other person has a 
skin-eating bacteria or something. So I have seen that. Now, I'm not sure that that's entirely fair, but I think you could make the case that Jesus was not saying if someone comes up to you and stabs you in one kidney, turn and offer him the other one, and then you're dead unless you get immediate medical attention. So I do think there's an element there. And also, he's not saying if you come upon somebody brutalizing one of your children, then offer him the other child as well if you got two or more kids. Like Jesus isn't saying that. So I'm trying to choose my words here. There's a lot of times where Jesus will say something and modern Christians who find it awkward or like a hard rule to follow will assume Jesus is merely being metaphorical. No, he doesn't literally mean what he just said because, geez, that would be hard to live up to. Whereas in this case, it's like the other way around. <laughs> that what Jesus is literally saying actually isn't that hard to do. I mean, it's not easy, but it's not going to completely change your lifestyle or something necessarily, unless you're a bully or someone who don't take no sass from anybody. But yet people often assume in, the, in that case that Jesus means something else entirely that's much more difficult. So it's just an interesting way to go about it. Okay, so besides that element of if he really just didn't mean offer one than the other, more generally to go through it. So I, and I said this to the person I was talking to, that there is a whole tradition, a whole literature that's now becoming, I don't know, scientific's the right word, evidence-based about using nonviolent methods of resistance against a foe who has superior might. All right, so it's not merely coming. So, so it overlaps with Christianity. And so historically, many of the people who would practice nonviolent resistance to evil happened to be Christian, or maybe happened to be is not the right thing. They were Christians. But the case for using nonviolent resistance need not be based on theology, right? Even if you just were Skynet running calculations and trying to figure out the best way to achieve certain results, if you did not have as many guns and tanks and whatnot as the regime that you are standing up against, it could pop out of the other end of the calculations that, no, the best thing to do right now is to try to appeal to the moral conscience of the population at large. So now this starts tying into all of the other things that I've spent my career researching and writing about. And so a lot of this stuff is going to be things longtime listeners have heard me say, but it all kind of fits together, that what I'm trying to get across is a lot of the things that if you're like a standard libertarian, particularly if you're an anarcho-capitalist, I'm saying a lot of the patterns that you've seen there, you just need to push them a little further. And all of a sudden the Sermon on the Mount and some of the things that at first blush seem like, oh, come on, he couldn't literally mean that because that'd be crazy. It's actually not so crazy, or at least it's conceivable that maybe that could work. So again, just step back. If you are a radical libertarian, particularly if you're a Rothbardian market anarchist or anarcho-capitalist, a lot of your views, regular people would hear them and just be astonished. And it's like, no, you could, what? And so you could say, well, hey, isn't taxation theft? And you say, well, no, because we need to have roads and you need to have military. And it's like, whoa, whoa you're just arguing consequences. What you're saying is you don't want taxation to be theft because you can't see how 
we could have a decent standard of living in a world without the government funding things. And you can't see how the government could fund things without there being taxation. And you don't want it to be that you're endorsing systematic theft day in and day out forever. So that's why you're saying, no, come on, taxation can't be theft. That's actually not a good argument. It's sort of like if someone said, is it cruel to animals to eat them? Well, no, I mean, it's because you like steak, right? By the way, I'm not a vegetarian. I'm just acknowledging that part of why I'm not a vegetarian is because I like meat and how it tastes, which probably is not a great argument for it. And my point is, even if I did give other arguments, it's probably just because I would want to make sure the conclusion was I'm not a moral monster or I'm not a modern day plantation owner or somebody who participates in the slave trade by eating burgers. I want that to be the case. So I'm gosh darn it going to make sure whatever logical arguments and blah, 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 I select pops that answer out of the other end of the tunnel. Okay, so that's the thing with taxation is theft order. And so what allows you to relax and just say, yeah, taxation is theft, is if you can see how society could function even in the absence of taxation. And so once someone just explains that to you, oh, there could be like private courts and the roads would be built through voluntary means. And oh, there could even be military defense for people who just voluntarily contribute to either insurance companies, which then go out and actually buy the missiles and such, or whatever, militia groups or who knows what. But you don't need to have the systematic taking of people's money where the oversight at best is periodically. We all have a big popularity contest and pick some people who then decide how much of all of our money is going to be taken. And if we disagree, we get thrown in a cage. That seems like a weird system. And yet many people just say, well, that's necessary. Well, no, what if it's not necessary? then maybe we can get rid of it. Okay, so I'm saying if you can just start imagining a society where people really did, as the default, turn the other cheek, at first you think, well, they would just get invaded by the nearest neighbor who was like a, quote, normal society. And I want to say, no, that I don't think that would happen. Right? There's plenty of things that the original society could do to defend itself without engaging in standard techniques of violent self-defense. All right, so the standard libertarian position is you can't use violence in the initiation of aggression. That that leads to, besides just being immoral in principle, it actually leads to consequences that are undesirable from your own perspective in many cases. Like if your goal is just to cause human suffering, then yeah, go ahead and initiate aggression. I'm not going to be able to prove that that's a bad idea. But if your goal is to feed hungry children, not only is it a violation of abstract principles to go out and tax people to then fund food stamp programs and soup kitchens and stuff that receive government funding. Actually, I would argue in the long run for sure, that system leads to more children being undernourished than if you had a completely voluntary society, right? And so likewise, if you're saying, well, no, Somebody strikes my cheek, I'm going to smack that guy. Or I'm going to have a bunch of guys sitting around with guns, letting it be known. If you just go up and slap someone in the cheek, at the very least, you're getting tackled and thrown into a cage. And, did it, and I'm saying, no, actually, I think in the long run, 
a society that has that as the policy will see more people getting slapped than a different approach. Even though at first blush, it seems like, well, that's crazy. Okay. Likewise, at first blush to many people, it seems obvious if your narrow goal is to feed hungry children, of course, we're going to go tax billionaires and then use the money to buy soup and give it to the kids. How could that possibly cause more children to be hungry? What are you, nuts? Where the billionaires just going to do, I'm not going to go work anymore. And society collapses in an atlas shrugged dystopia because billionaires have to pay a 0.1% tax in order to give baby formula to little kids. Come on, right? But if you're a standard libertarian, you probably actually do think all things considered in the long run. And part of what the all things are is that in practice, a coercive state is not going to run the taxation and redistribution programs according to the textbook, the Rawlsian textbook approach or whatever ethical theory you want to use as your lodestar. It's the first time I've used the word lodestar. I hope I used it right. Right. So that's part of what's going on here. And so I'm allowed to use the same type of considerations that when you allow for defensive violence, a lot of times that spills into aggressive violence, right? And it's, I'm not cheating by saying that, just like if you're a standard libertarian, you don't think it's cheating to say, hey, you know, if you take a bunch of communists and put them in charge of food production, they might decide to engineer a mass famine to eliminate millions of their political enemies. That's happened time and time again in history. And the textbook communists aren't allowed to just say, well, no, but we're not talking about that. We're saying if good people ran a communist society and just used the people's farmland to raise the crops or whatever and give them around to people on the basis of need, that's what we're talking. We're not talking about deliberately starving your political enemies. Come on, geez. We're not all Stalin. Like you can see that's kind of a naive defense of their view. And so likewise to say, okay, what we're going to do is anytime someone comes up and starts a fight, we're allowed then to finish it. By doing that, you are probably going to spawn more people starting fights. Because if the rule is you can't use violence, period, it's pretty easy to tell if someone's doing it or not. If the rule is you can't start a fight, but you're allowed to hit back, well, now that gets harder to disentangle. You come upon a scene and there's two guys brawling and they both say, oh, you started it. Whereas you come upon a scene and one guy is punching and kicking another guy who's just sitting there trying to like guard his ribs and whatever and his crotch and saying, why are you hitting me? What are you doing? It's pretty clear who is the one using violence and who's not. Okay, so there's that element. And I think a lot of people underestimate the power of truth in a voluntary society and one in which I would argue, or I'm, I'm going to claim that not merely institutionally, like the, in terms of the vast majority of people on a daily basis, not initiate aggression, but they don't even resort to violence defensively in that kind of a world. I think you want to disentangle. Well, there's no reason to make that distinction. Even in a standard Rothbardian world, I think it's very important to disentangle the judicial, call it system if you want, or let's call it industry. Like, I think that's a better term to like get us thinking along these lines and how it would actually look in practice. 
the judicial industry from the law enforcement industry. Okay, that those are two distinct things. There's one group of people who are experts in the law and what its conclusions are on a given case. They render an opinion. We call them judges. And they're not employed by the same company that also has men and women with guns who go out and enforce it. All right. And again, we're talking standard Rothbardian world where you can use defensive violence. I'm saying a lot of times in Rothbard's treatment and in the Rothbardian treatment, meaning others who do it in that tradition, a lot of times it gets lumped together. Like it's the same agency, like there's economies of scale. And I'm saying, no, 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 there's no reason for that to be the case. In fact, I think it's important that it is distinct to sort of reduce the possibility, the perception of conflicts of interest. Okay. And so what I'm saying is for the enforcement element, that's somewhat of a, just a detail. The important thing is society knows who the owner of that house is, the title is. And this is where like blockchain stuff, if you're into that and you're using smart contracts and there's the public ledger, that's what excites me so much about that element of that discussion is I appreciate, I think more than most, the impact it would have if the community had this ledger that powerful people could not knock down that was just sitting there and anybody who wanted to could go look and see and know that, yeah, that house right there, that's actually Joe Smith's house. Now, Joe's not able to live in it because this biker gang came along and they claim it's theirs, but we all know that that's not true. The only reason they're in there is because there's eight of them and they have baseball bats and a few handguns and Joe and his family really, I think I call the guy Joe. They're not going to fight those guys over the house, but the community knows those guys stole his house or are squatting in it illegally, right? And the widespread perception of that, I think in the long run is more important than knowing, oh, in a case where a particular judge rules a certain way, how do we make sure like enough guys with guns show up and take care of it? And we got to have this other thing over here where there's cages that are built to house these people. And I, I want to say, no, I would much rather, to me, it's much more important to get more people in the community to be sure or to be very confident in the ruling rather than to have stricter violent enforcement of the ruling. Because in the long run, if everybody know, like if 95% of the people are pretty sure that that biker gang really just took this guy's house, there's all sorts of ramifications from that. And you might think, well, who cares? They're a biker gang. They don't care if people snub them or they don't get invited to cocktail party. But I'm not talking merely about stuff like that. I'm just saying in the extreme case, there could be other places of business that just don't let them even come onto the property. That would certainly be legal to do that in the kind of world I'm talking about. And it's not that they tackle them and quote, arrest them. They could just say, you're not welcome here. And there could be their own internal security forces who don't use violence. They come out with body armor and like those big plastic, you know, like the riot police use, like the barricade. They hold the thing. They're like, they look like the shields that like the Roman legions would used to use or whatever. And, but they're transparent. 
right? So they can kind of just push people off the property, but without really harming them. You could do all kinds of stuff like that. And so it wouldn't even require that, oh, every place of business has 30 guys who are trained in those techniques and equipped whatever with body armor and such so that they probably aren't going to get hurt. You wouldn't need it that, oh, every business has that. And so this biker gang would know, oh, if we do this, we're finished. We can't even buy food next week. No, it could just be if a decent amount of businesses had that in place, then taking somebody's house like that is actually going to crimp your lifestyle. All right. Now, you also have to take into account if there is a world like that, well, you don't have taxation. You don't have a drug war. You don't have potholes in the roads. You don't have... <laughs> so this is going to be a fantastically wealthy society. All right? So it's not going to be that expensive or proportionally. It's not going to be that expensive, costly relative to total economic output in order to have plenty of people equipped with state-of-the-art body armor and whatever. So it's not like, don't picture today's world and you're running a business in the inner city and there's a lot of carjackings and stuff. And what? You expect me to protect my employees and customers without having guns? What are you, nuts? And I'm just saying partly the reason we are so poor right now and it's so hard to effectively deter violent behavior without threatening violence yourself is that we have violent institutions that keep us poor. A particular application, I don't want to forget about it, is in terms of using love rather than hatred to achieve an end. There's a lot of conservatives in the United States who want to invade Mexico and like behead the leaders of the drug cartels. Like, we got to get serious with these people. We got to start bombing them. She's just like a military campaign. You could try that. I think in the long run, it probably would just mean the cartels that would emerge out of the ruins of that initial strike would be even more ruthless than the previous versions were and drug prices would be higher and so they would have more money to fund their own weapons acquisition and paying off Mexican judges and police captains and whatnot. So you could do that or you could ramp down the violence and you could tell the men with guns and women with guns in the U.S., to stop grabbing drug consumers or mid-level producers, middlemen, and throwing them in cages and using guns to threaten them. Because if you did that, then the Mexican cartels, their power just dissolves away gradually without any direct assault on them. Okay, so it's two different strategies. One that ramps up the violence, the other turns down the violence. And I would argue the latter works, right? So again, I understand if you're a standard Rothbard, you're like, well, right, Bob, uh, arresting nonviolent drug users is an initiation of aggression. So we're, we agree with you there. What we're saying though is if someone wants to initiate aggression on me, then I can defend myself with violence if need be. And there's nothing wrong with that. And is it, okay. So by the way, I'm not even saying there's anything that is not, I don't think you're violating anyone's rights, put it that way. But I think Jesus is teaching you still there's a better way, okay? Just like you're not violating someone's rights if you swear at them, but in general, yeah, we all probably should be swearing less than we do, okay? It shouldn't be illegal, in my view, to cheat on your spouse. Certainly, though, that's a sin. It's immoral. You shouldn't do that. But I don't think you violated a right. Now, 
I suppose technically, depending on the marriage contract or whatever, you could say technically it's a contract violation. And I don't know if you want to say that's illegal. Okay, but I think you guys get my point. It's not that in general, or let's say cheat on your girlfriend. Let's keep it simpler. Let's not get into, because marriage involves contracts. Okay, you can be dating somebody. And I would still say if you cheat on the person, you did something wrong, you did something immoral, you sinned. But I certainly don't think you broke the law or you violated your girlfriend or boyfriend's rights. Okay. So likewise here, I'm not trying to argue there's something wrong with the NAP or the Rothbardian delineation of property rights, at least if you're going to use an armchair perspective. I'm just saying it's still possible that given that framework, still, even though someone strikes you on your cheek, you have the right to strike them back. Walter Block would argue the right to strike them back twice. But I'm saying it might be wiser and the better thing to do is to not exercise that right. Instead, to forgive the person. Okay. And again, if that sounds crazy to you, I would just invite you to think through first. Like, so if, in other words, if you're thinking, oh, society would crumble in three days if 98% of the people followed that advice. And I'm saying, no, it wouldn't. You might say it would be worse than a society that, pre- that just the Rothbard rule. Okay. And like, would that we had that choice? Like, th- that'd be a great predicament to be in is if we had to choose between our institutions only use defensive violence or they don't use violence at all. Like either of those outcomes would be so much better than what we currently have. That'd be great to be in that conundrum. But I'm saying even there though, at the very least, I invite you to actually just relax, you know, it's not going to hurt. You don't have to become a pacifist, (laughs) but just think through and realize, no, like if the way we dealt with bank robbers was, you know, the vaults would just close, maybe security officers would show up with body armor and they would have nets and things like that. Right. And that's what they would do. And you said, well, what if they're heavily armed, the, the robbers and the, okay, maybe sometimes they just decide, yeah, people are going to get hurt. We're just going to let them go. You say, what? what is it? But no, they could come up with techniques to minimize how much the robbers could get away with. Right. They could have all kinds of fail safes and whatnot, physical barriers so that they would have to be there all day to really get a lot of what the bank had. They're not going to do that. And then worst case, you know, we identify them. We got cameras and such other kinds of investigative techniques. So even if they do get away with it, the police or whatever we want to call that group of people, you know, they detectives and one that we know who did it. And then the judges can render opinions and say, yeah, they just stole 6,000 ounces of gold from such and such a bank on Tuesday. We know who they are. This is the thing. They should pay this amount plus damages back to that bank and its shareholders. And the community, we will keep track of whether they do that or not. And the community can act accordingly. And major companies are going to not do business with them because they're pariahs. And they're not going to be able to use banks. Yeah, any funds they have in other bank accounts, arguably there could be clauses that say, yeah, if you're convicted in a reputable court of stealing money, then if you have money deposited with us, we're at the very least not going to let you have it. Like we might not give it to the other party as damages, we, but we will not let you get your deposit out of our bank if there's this pending judgment against you that you're just flouting. You're not flaunting it, by the way, you're flouting it, right? That could be standard in like major banks, okay? Car rental companies would say, no, actually, if you've been convicted of armed robbery, 
and you're just ignoring the ruling, you can't rent the car from us. We're not going to tackle you and try to put you in a cage, but if you show up on our property, we're going to ask you to leave. And we do have our own countermeasures that don't involve hurting you physically, but you could say, well, why don't they come up with their AK-47s and take the Pathfinder from the car rental place? And they could go around and do that. And even so, they would take a lot less from the society every year than the government currently takes, right? So we're still talking about a fantastically wealthier society than what we have now. And so again, we're quibbling on the margins about whether we're going to be 20 times richer or 17 times richer. It's not that that society would crumble. And I think a lot of people underestimate, it sounds cliched, and I know a lot of times it's progressive leftists who think like this. And so right-wingers don't like this kind of talk, but I think there's a lot to be said for the cycle of violence and taking people who commit a crime and throwing them in a cage where they're housed with other violent criminals who either abuse them or teach them the tricks of the trade and they make associations and, oh yeah, look me up when you get out. I got a job I've been planning, All right? Or here, let me brutally assault you for five years and then now we're going to let you out and let's see what a nice law-abiding citizen you are that you've just been getting raped for five years, right? So the prisons in a Rothbardian world are going to be a lot more humane. There's going to be competition, all right? Only genuinely violent people are going to be in there or I guess thieves who might not be technically violent, but aggression initiators. So it'll minimize the problem. But still, I'm saying I think a different strategy would minimize the initiation of aggression in the long run. Okay. So let's come back to Jesse Kelly says, this is on Twitter, not one Republican DA in the entire country has announced impending charges against a major Democrat. Not one. We will never win until the low T, meaning testosterone, GOP starts hitting back, ever. We give the communists zero incentive to stop or even slow down. Pathetic. And then Matt Walsh retweeted that, Jesse Kelly observation, and then Matt said, mutually assured destruction is the only way through this. Treat them like they treat us. Hold them to their own standards. It's not pretty, but it's the only way. Either this or we bow down and surrender. Okay, so then I was a wise guy and I responded to Matt saying, if they strike us on our cheek, we should dash. And I just trailed off. So I had 12 hearts as of right now, four comments. So thank goodness I haven't been ratioed. But the responses to me are interesting. So one guy says, so remember what I said is if they strike us on our cheek, we should. So for people who don't know the context, Matt Walsh is Christian. And so I am just <laughs> reminding him that it's pretty clear cut what Jesus says should happen. Jesus does not say treat them like they treat us. Rather, what Jesus says is treat them the way we would like them to treat us. Okay. So anyway, I had said, if they strike us on our cheek, we should. So one guy answered me and said, make them understand that retribution is tenfold. Okay. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. That's clearly not Christian. And then... <laughs> another guy posts Conan saying, you know, the Schwarzenegger saying, to crush your enemies, see them driven before. I can't read it. There's a thing. It's a Bible quote. To hear the lamentation of their women. And another guy says, and if they strike again and again and again and again, turn the other cheek is not a call to suicide. And then a guy answered him and said, I mean, I don't know. It takes a whole lot of faith to go that far, though. And it shows... 
Jesus hanging on the cross. Okay, so the reason I wanted to go through all that is, number one, it is interesting how often when they're advising about political tactics, Republican Christians say, oh, our enemies do bad things to us, so we have to do those bad things back to them. And in fact, Matt Walsh's particular recommendation that we have to use, what did he say? Hold them to their own standards. That's right out of Saul Alinsky's playbook. His rule number four from Rules for Radicals is make opponents live up to their own book of rules. And this is interesting. So I'm reading here like a summary, I think, of what it is. So I'd, I mean, so that rule four is what Alinsky said, but that might not be his exact wording of it. And then it looks like there's a quote here, which I assume means it's the quote verbatim from Saul Alinsky's book. You can kill them with this for they can no more obey their own rules than the Christian church can live up to Christianity, right? So it's kind of ironic that Matt Walsh in saying in a very unchristian like way, I would argue, oh, what our enemies do to us, we do to them. And then let's hold them to their own standards that Saul Alinsky says that saying, because we all know, for example, Christians cannot live up to their own standards. And so this is, Matt's kind of proving Alinsky's point in a double way here. Okay. Incidentally, just to acknowledge my potential contradiction or hypocrisy, if you want, I think in one of my Bob Murphy show episodes, I, geez, I can't even now remember what it was. There was some trend that I thought was pretty clever. It might've been the gas thing, but I might be getting mixed up where people were slapping the stickers of Joe Biden saying, I did that when gas prices were outrageous. But anyway, I was encouraging that. Like I was, I was trying to come up with practical things that people could do. And I did like, so Alinsky, let me just pull up. One of his rules is rule six. A good tactic is one your people enjoy. And I'll quote, if your people aren't having a ball doing it, there's something very wrong with the tactic. All right. So I think I had said, yeah, I want to use it. So I'm not saying if something you argue is similar to a rule from Alinsky's rule book, therefore it must be wrong. But it's not great. <laughs> it should give us pause, put it that way. Okay. Now, what also is interesting to me about this, I just want to make this point, is it's funny how, and again, since we're going into Easter week here, people using the case of Jesus, they go, oh, Jesus preached these things. Well, gee, if we were to follow his advice literally, we would end up dead like he was. Now. If you're going to use the gospel accounts, like internally, and you could say, yeah, Jesus really did follow his own advice, right? He could have called upon his father to send 12 legions of angels to defend him, but he chose not to because he wanted the scriptures to be fulfilled. Instead, evil men came. They started doing horrible things to him and Jesus did not resist them. And so, well, you know, she kept doing that. You'd be dead, right? And then, oh, and then the story ended up. Oh, so Jesus followed his own advice. He ended up dead. The end. The Roman Empire continued unabated. No, that's not what happened in the story. Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin and saved humanity by following his own advice. All right, that, yeah, they killed him and that didn't stop him. Now, you're going to say, okay, Bob, but, you know, he's God and, okay, God can still do miracles, number one. And also, number two, if people could see the world that I see, if 95% of the people tried to obey the Sermon on the Mount literally, 
or at least really moved in that direction, the results would be, quote, miraculous. You would not believe the potential of humanity if we just lived like that or at least moved a big step toward that ideal. And so you say, oh, what do you mean? Like it'd be an, oh shoot, what was the name of that movie? Is it Split? The three-part series, there's Unbreakable, then there's the middle one, and then there's Glass. I think it's Split, where the guy, he has all the different personalities, and when he becomes like the, I forget what they call it, the monster, like his skin gets hard, and so bullets bounce off him. He becomes bulletproof. And so am I saying that? I'm not ruling it out. (laughs) I do think Jesus went around and healed lepers. Okay, so if you're sure that that is impossible, I would wonder, well, how do you know that? And you say, oh, come on, I just know. Well, how do you know that? Are you a dermatology expert? Like you, you really know like the constituents of human skin and know that there's no way that you could take those cells and somehow think, I mean, there's, I would have allergic reactions when I was in grad school. Like I looked like a reptile, like in the course of an hour. And then I would take a ton of Benadryl and it would get a little bit better. <laughs> like it was bad. Like I actually thought, I was wondering if I should contact some medical researchers and say, you guys like want to take a picture of my forearms or something here? Like this is kind of freaky. Okay. No, I'm not saying I was bulletproof then. I'm just saying I would not have thought my body was capable of transforming that quickly. So I think a lot of us, because things are in the norm and this is not outside our daily experience, we assume a lot of stuff is quote impossible and No, you really don't know what's possible in terms of the laws of physics. But anyway, my point is that a lot of what you assume would have to be the case is based on a narrow slice of experience in the existing system that is characterized by widespread violence. And so you don't know how resilient humanity would be if most people weren't violent. And that was just like understood that that was unacceptable. It's kind of like the debate over hitting your kids. There's certain people that think like, well, no, you got to take your belt out and whip your kids every once in a while. Otherwise, why would they ever listen to you? And then for parents who don't do that, it's like, what are you talking about? There's other techniques you can, like, it just has to be understood that you're not doing that to your kid and you will come up with other ways. And what may seem impossible to you, we figured it out. It's not that our kid became a serial killer or cleaned out our checking account or smashed every plate in the house because we were unwilling to slap them or whip them with a belt. That didn't happen. Okay. And I'm saying, if you think society can't function without taking lawbreakers at gunpoint and throwing them in cages for three to five years, I think you just aren't trying hard enough. There's other techniques we could use and it's too easy to just say, no, we have to do that. Otherwise we'd all be dead in three weeks. No. That's not right. Okay. Anyway, what is particularly interesting in this stuff is for whatever reason, there's a lot of, like I say, Republican Christians in particular who are very vindictive, who are very much eye for an eye, or in many cases, 10 eyes for an eye when it comes to politics. And that actually isn't surprising because politics brings up the worst in all of us. What is also interesting here, I'll end on this point, is so this person I was talking to had mentioned that he was reading the Bible. Originally, he started out in the Old Testament and he thought it was a bit harsh, but he kind of understood it. It resonated with him. There's parts where God orders the Israelites to go in and just slaughter everybody. 
including babies. That's kind of hard to deal with, right? Yikes. And so I made this observation. I said, isn't it interesting that a lot of people, when they read the Old Testament, their reaction is, whoa, this God, the father guy, and I'm using the, obviously they don't call him God, the father in the Old Testament, but once you've read the whole book now, hey, what'd you think of the Old Testament? Jeez, this God, the father guy, he's pretty merciless. Like he's got his rules and you just violate one little thing and kill you. This guy's not joking around. Floods the whole planet. It's kind of scary. I don't like that. Then you get to the New Testament. Oh, this guy, God, the son, he's a doormat. He's saying all these people acting sinfully and breaking rules and stuff and that just don't do anything to them. You just love them and turn the other cheek and don't repay evil with evil. And huh, that's kind of crazy. Who, who would want to do that? That's terrible advice. I don't like that guy either. That's crazy. So maybe what's going on is they're both aspects of the same God. And the complete picture is you humans do not have the knowledge. You just have this narrow little slice of observations that you've made. You don't know very much. You're selfish, you're biased, your reasoning ability is limited. You're prone to emotional overreactions and you've got Satan whispering in your ear. So when someone commits an injustice, I am telling you as God, answer with love and kindness and mercy and forgiveness. Do not judge because I, God, the supreme being who is omnipotent, omniscient and omnibenevolent. I want the best for everyone. You are all my children. I will handle the injustice. It's not that you're noticing something that missed my gaze. It's not that you have a better value system than I do. It's not that you're in a better position to address the problem than I am. So I will take care of it. What you should do is love your neighbor as yourself. I will take care of the evil. And, oh, you think that that's hard for me to ask you to do? Okay, I will become you. Now I'm a man, just like you, and I'm going to walk around and I'm going to show you. People are going to come. I'm going to go around, do nothing but give amazing, beautiful speeches that edify everyone who hears them, even my opponents. Walk away dumbfounded and amazed at the eloquence and majesty of my words. I'm going to perform miracles. I'm going to heal the sick. I'm going to raise people from the dead. And your religious leaders who have been waiting for me are going to stir the crowds up to call for my violent execution and choose to release a criminal and killer rather than me so that I can be tortured and murdered by being nailed to a piece of wood and left there to slowly suffocate in agony over the course of many hours. And right before I die, I am going to ask the father element of myself to forgive all of you for doing that to me. And when I do that, that's not the end of the story. Then I come back from the dead because someone who actually does it to that level of fidelity to what I'm saying is capable of the miraculous. 
right? That's how the world works. I know because I created it. That's how people work. I know because I created them. Happy Easter, everybody. I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.